conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back, and I am joined today by Alex DiVincenzo, and we are talking all about the 1984 film A Nightmare on Elm Street. I wanted to clarify the date there, since there are many of them now. (laughs) It's only one true Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm getting that vibe, you know, and (laughs) I apparently had not seen this start to finish like I thought I had, because I was going through and... I was like, okay, I remember this scene and this scene, but then there was so much I didn't remember. Like, I had no recollection of Johnny Depp being in this. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I want to like, I want to interview you about this because like it's so okay. It's so cool that you'd never seen it before. Like, obviously, you knew you know of Freddie as like this pop pop culture icon, and I'm sure you knew a lot of like the iconic moments. But if you hadn't seen it in full before, like, what did it still play? Did it still play as an effective horror movie? Oh, totally. And I think what happened was I would go over to a friend's house for, I think, a several year stretch every Halloween. And we would kind of just put on horror movies before going out and going trick or treating. And this had to have been when I was, I don't know, 12, 13 ish age. So I think what happened was we just never got to the end of any of the movies because we would stop and go <laughs> trick-or-treating and then we wouldn't finish the movie after the fact. Or we would kind of just turn on whatever was on TV because it was Halloween. You know, there's horror movies galore that day. So yeah. I had seen parts of Halloween, parts of this, probably parts of Friday the 13th and things like the It miniseries. So It was just sort of this hodgepodge of horror stuff that I was only ever partially watching. (laughs) So (laughs) now I'm kind of making it my goal, especially this month. I'm trying to watch either a horror movie a day or at least part of a horror TV show a day. So, you know, we're recording this on October 2nd, but everyone listening to it will be hearing it, you know, a little more midway towards the end of the month, probably. But I was like, okay, I have so many horror movies that I haven't seen. And it just surprises people, I guess, probably because I started a Stephen King podcast. (laughs) So they're (laughs) like, oh, you haven't seen that or that? And, you know, this was just one of those things where I was very familiar with the story of Freddy Krueger and I could recite you the Freddy song. (laughs) You know, I knew the song. So I had clearly seen enough of it for that to stick in my brain. But yeah, this definitely played off as still a very effective horror movie. And I loved watching it. That's so cool. Because uh, I mean, it's one of my favorite movies. Uh, And it was one of the movies that kind of made me fall in love with horror. But it's I mean, I saw it when I was like, I don't know, 14, 15. And then I I still found it pretty creepy. And I recently showed it to my girlfriend who hadn't seen it for the first time. and, And she thought it was effective. So it's really cool. Because I'll say this Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween is is my favorite movie of all time. Okay. But I think if you show that, if you show that movie to a kid who's 14 or so now, they're probably going to be bored by it because there's been so many movies. I mean, including Elm Street, including Friday the 13th, movies that came after it that did essentially on paper did the same thing, use the same formula, plus ramped up like, you know, the gore or the nudity or what have you, things that might be exciting to a 13 year old. <laughs> yeah. But I do think. You know, especially in light of this conversation. And like I said, I showed it to my girlfriend. You could show 
the original Nightmare on Elm Street to a kid now, and I think they'd still be pretty creeped out by it. Yeah, and I think that just goes to show how well the cast and crew did with this movie. And it's funny, you and I discussed a return to Salem's lot on my Chat Cemetery podcast, that Stephen King one I just mentioned. And Ronnie Blakely is also in this. So I was like, yes, oh, that yeah. name looks familiar. I wonder yeah. why. And then I went to her IMDb page and I was like, oh, that's because I just watched her in this other thing that was really, really <laughs> bad. Yeah, she's uh, well, we'll get to Ronnie Blakely, I guess, because she's she's a character in this. But I think I think, like you said, I mean, it's a testament to the cast and crew, but particularly Wes Craven. I mean, slashers by nature are super like formulaic. It's, yes. you know, guy usually in a mask or whatever, you know, killing off teens. But I think the concept behind Nightmare on Elm Street of like, you know, it happens in your dreams. There's no escaping it. It's so ingenious. And it's almost like it's almost surprising it took someone that long. I mean, granted, this was only like four years after Friday the 13th. So like the slasher boom was just kind of coming to a head, but it's almost amazing. It took this long for someone to think of it, but I'm so glad it was Wes Craven. Cause I think, I mean, I think he's brilliant. Um, and not only to have written it so well, but also directed, it's a really well-made movie for it's like pretty limited budget. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I noticed a lot of the horror films, especially from roughly this time period we're doing. You mentioned Halloween that wasn't done on some huge budget either. And a lot of the Stephen King adaptations for the time weren't on the biggest budgets because horror was this thing that people definitely enjoyed, but it's not something like Jaws or Indiana Jones that people were just going out in droves to see. And you have all of these people wanting to go see these big movies, and then you have sort of these cult horror fans who are going to go out and see pretty much every horror movie. And I'm guessing at the time, neither Carpenter nor Wes Craven knew that they were going to have these massive franchises that would last for decades on their hands. Yeah, it's weird because, and I mean, this is a, a broader topic altogether, I suppose, but like horror has kind of always been the the redheaded stepchild of the industry. People think horror, people who enjoy horror are like the lowest common denominator. Uh, denominator. Don't let my misspeaking feel like I'm the lowest common denominator. <laughs> but I think, you know, like I said, like there's staples of the genre that include, you know, nudity and gore. And like, yeah, that might be a gateway to some kids uh, interest in horror. But I think that is it's just that it's a gateway. And then you open up to things like, you know, the social commentary, you know, the melding of genres you can do. Uh, basically, if you can do you can basically set any other genre of movie within a horror movie and it still works. Um, and I don't think there's many other, if any other, maybe sci-fi genres that that really works with. Mm -hmm. With Halloween, I mean, that was like a big turning point because it was like, oh, we can churn these out for cheap and kids will come see them, you know, every weekend. And they did that, especially with the, the slasher like boom of the early 80s, which Nightmare on Elm Street is a direct byproduct of. Um, Friday the 13th, I mean, they, they admit that it was straight up trying to cash in on Halloween. I don't get quite that vibe from Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, it definitely feels like its own thing. Certainly, you know, some of the gore and maybe the the, the basic slasher elements that are included were, yeah. were borrowed from the tropes at the time, played yeah. on the tropes, but, but it does its own thing and makes it, has its own identity, which a lot of those movies lack. As much as I love Halloween, I think A Nightmare on Elm Street is a lot more clever with how it portrays Freddy Krueger, just because yeah. you have this fact that it 
like you said, takes place in your dreams. So when you have, you know, Tina played by Amanda Weiss, Wiss, not totally sure on that pronunciation there, but... (laughs) I believe it's Wiss, but I could be wrong. Okay. When you have Tina being attacked, and obviously we're clearly going into spoiler territory as I do on every episode of this (laughs) podcast and... You know, if you're like me and you haven't watched a movie from 1984, that's kind of your own fault. (laughs) But when you have Tina being attacked, you know, Rod can't see Freddy. Only Tina can see him because it's taking place in her dreams, but it's also blending with her reality. So Freddy has this way of crossing over this line from dreams to reality without being seen. And that's even more terrifying than Michael Myers, because at least you can see Michael Myers and what he's doing to <laughs> someone else. And when only one person can see Freddy, you're kind of like, oh, okay. And then you go on and you find out that, you know, Nancy's mom, Marge, has this history with Freddy Krueger. And it's unclear if the rest of the parents were also present for that whole scenario that went down with burning Freddy alive. but you can tell right away that the lieutenant and Marge recognize that name and recognize Nancy's description of him later because what happens is all of the kids are having the same dream of the same person anyway. And the guys are a little more hesitant to admit it. Yeah, I I think uh, to your earlier point about, you know, kind of the the effectiveness of Freddy, it's I think the original Halloween was so effective because it was the first of its kind. I mean, yeah. that's debate, uh, the debatable, I guess there. It certainly had precursors. But I think Halloween basically is all of the things that we know as a slasher, whereas earlier movies had certain elements, but maybe not all of them. Um, but it w- worked. And, I, and I, I appreciate the fact that Michael Myers is just a random guy who's killing people for no rhyme or reason, at least unless you watch Halloween, too, then he has a reason. But regardless um he's just a guy and that kind of makes it scary like he could be you know anywhere it's you know it's it's they even make the neighborhood look like it's supposed to be you know anywhere usa basically um but then in like the the five years that followed you had maybe you know 20 slasher films you had a friday the 13th the burning sleepaway camp in a prom night terror train like all these movies that did the same basic concept where it was just like you know some person out killing people um so for Nightmare on Elm Street to just kind of subvert those expectations and be like, yeah, you might not be afraid of a guy with a knife anymore who's running through the woods, but how about this? You can't escape your dreams. Everyone's got to go to sleep. Uh, I just think it's so brilliant. I and the and then the way they they play into it, like you're saying, um, Tina's death at the beginning is is great for a couple of reasons. Um, I love that for the first like I don't know twenty minutes of the movie. If if you'd never seen it before, maybe you could testify to this one way or the other you kind of think tina's the main character yes like she's in the op- she's in the prologue you know the opening nightmare sequence um she gets a little bit more screen time you learn more about her relationship with her boyfriend than you than you do about um nancy so it's such a cool subversion of expectations which craven would later do to an even greater effect with uh drew barrymore and scream um so once once tina dies it's like oh nothing's safe you know anything goes in this world and it's such a such a cool scene where i mean it's in that rotating room and like you said we as the audience don't see freddie for at least most of it 
Um, we just see her body being dragged across the ceiling yeah. and, and gashes appearing and blood pouring out. Like it's it's very effective imagery. Yeah, absolutely. And I 100% thought Tina was going to be the main character because at the beginning they kind of portray her as the innocent girl. She's dressed in all white while she's sleeping. She has the crucifix hanging above her bed and you kind of think she's going to be the one that either doesn't die right away or dies last. But then when her mom heads out of town with the new boyfriend and then Tina clearly makes up with her boyfriend and you instantly get that feeling that, okay, well, she just went and slept with her boyfriend, so something bad's going to happen. So, you know, A Nightmare on Elm Street does sort of have some of those horror tropes like, oh, okay, the the high school kids who are out having sex and drinking and all this, they're going to be one of the first ones to go. And you see that in Halloween too, but at the be- very beginning of the movie, they don't make you think Tina's going to be that character. Right, right. And then it turns out, you know, Nancy is the one who is sort of the bookish one. She's still going out with Glenn and you can tell that they've been together for a while, but you don't see or hear her sleeping with Glenn or anything like that. It's a very innocent kind of relationship, at least how they portray it. And then everything sort of falls into place. It's like, okay, so Tina's going to go, Rod's going to go, and then they'll deal with Glenn and Nancy. And because Nancy is the one who is so active in fighting back against Freddie, she lasts the longest. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, they, they make a point to point out that um, the night where the, that they all stay together, um, Glenn it won't sleep with Nancy, or Nancy won't let Glenn sleep with her, yeah. I should say. You know, so she says you get the couch or something to that effect. Yeah, so you really get that instinct right away, especially if you have seen something like Halloween before. And even though it does follow that typical storyline, just what they did with Freddy was so unique that you kind of didn't care that they did that. And it's like, okay, you know what? We kind of knew this was going to happen in either... One Direction with Tina or One Direction with Nancy, depending on who slept with whoever's boyfriend first. And (laughs) so to have some time to build up to that, though, they trick you into thinking it's going to be the other character. And I really like that it wasn't completely straightforward. And then the way that Freddie can appear to the audience outside of the character's dreams was very interesting. And, you know, he kind of just walks right through things, especially when Rod is in jail and Nancy's outside the window trying to get him to wake up. And you just see Freddie walk straight through the bars. And it actually didn't look that bad for 1984. I was like, okay, that, you know, that wasn't horrible CGI or anything. Yeah. Better than some modern CGI. Yeah. So the way they crafted the story from start to finish, really lent itself to this unique perspective for the audience when you're watching this serial killer kind of come back to life, but not really because he's not really alive. So you have this added element to it that I think makes it stand out from a lot of the other slashers from this time period. And granted, I'll be the first to admit I haven't seen all of them by any means. And I don't know if I will end up doing that, but I'm sure there are plenty that are worth watching. And story-wise, you care about the characters in this. 
And it's not necessarily that you don't care about Tina or Rod, and that's why they end up being the first ones to go. It's just that you really get a sense for who all of these characters are before they start killing them off. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another, you know, a testament to to the writing. Um, good characters. Also, it's a good cast. Um, they're, yeah. I mean, some people better than others, but I'm in general, they all feel like believable. They feel like teenagers, um, both in their in how they're written and how they're portrayed. Um, you know, they're not dumbed down. They're not one dimensional. Um, so I, I do appreciate that. What do you think of the lore that's sort of silently built up with Freddie throughout the movie? Because you have the fact that when Nancy describes Freddie, her parents both get this look. So you know right away that they know something. And then at the beginning, you hear the song and you see the girls playing jump rope. And then you see that again later on in the movie. So you don't really need to get the full story of Freddie until Marge tells it to Nancy. And even then, it's not like she's going in excruciating detail or anything. Yeah, uh, it's. I feel like if this movie were made today... I mean, I know it's it was remade recently, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> but if if like you know an original movie with this concept were made today, um, I feel like you'd have so much more exposition about the how and the why. Yeah. But it really does. I mean, you you understand what happened, what Freddie did when he was alive. You know, uh, all the parents round round him up. Basically, he was arrested, but then got out on a technicality. So all the parents kind of did vigilante justice um, and killed him, burned him alive. Um, and now he's back. But the there's a big gap between, you know, he kills him and now he's back. There's never like, what did he do? Did he? I mean, I mean, they explore this a little bit in some of the later sequels as to like why, you know, he made a deal with the demon or whatever to bring him back. But in this one, it's just like, you know, this is the first movie. This is all we need. It gets us from point A to point B in an easy, you know, easily digestible format. Um, and I've kind of always appreciated that. Yeah, if you look at it like in you know, under a microscope, you'll see that there's some maybe little lapses in logic or like, you know, who are the actual Elm Street kids versus who's just like there that he kills because they're there. Um, or, you know, whose parents were exactly involved. But I, I, do, I appreciate that they didn't go into, you know, the why, or I should say the how of how he becomes back as this this vengeful ghost killer, basically. Right. To me, it was clear that Nancy and Glenn at least lived on Elm Street because they were both in big fancy houses across the street from each other. So it seemed like that street was prominent in Freddie's history. And that could be because Marge lived on that street at the time when her and whoever else went to go burn him. Or it could just be because that's where his first victims were. You don't really know and you don't really need to. You know, the street isn't as significant as the title might make it seem really. And that's <laughs> fine because we understand like, okay, you know, bad things are happening to these characters and at least half of them live on the same street. So for me, that was enough. I was like, okay, you know, and it's almost like... Freddie is similar to Pennywise from It in a way because Pennywise goes dormant for 27 years and you don't really know what Pennywise is doing that entire time in the same way that nobody knows what Freddie was doing the entire time he was just lying in wait I guess yeah yeah no that's a good point um and I could actually see I mean side tangent I guess but with the the new It movies I mean I think it it felt a lot 
in certain parts, like uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Yeah. Now that I've seen it, I definitely get that vibe. (laughs) (laughs) Because in the same way that you can't see Freddy, not everyone can see Pennywise. So it's like these characters are able to just show themselves to the people they're going after. And then everyone else just thinks they're going mad, which is exactly what happens with Nancy. Her parents are very aware of who Freddy Krueger is, but they know he's dead and they're keeping that information from her. So then they don't really know what to think because clearly the description she gave was extremely accurate. And they're like, oh, well, that's kind of what he wore when he killed people. <laughs> so, you know, just the the story as a whole really felt horrific because you have this horrible thing that happened in the past and then it was dealt with in a very horrible way and then it all comes back to haunt everyone yeah i'd say but i know you probably have at least a few more questions for me regarding me watching this (laughs) in full for the first time so i'm going to hand the reins over to you for a bit (laughs) all right all right okay so what do you think of all the booby traps that's like a relatively common motif in Wes Craven's movies for okay. some reason. Uh, he he does it in uh, Last House on the Left. I think Kills Have Eyes. And then it's a big thing in this. Um, basically, there's, for those unfamiliar, maybe without the best memory, uh, there's a sequence later in the movie where she's going to bring Freddy into the real world. And when she does, she has her whole... She, earlier in the movie, is shown reading a book about booby traps and then puts it into practice, setting up all these... I don't know, kind of hokey, but uh, some some effective uh, booby traps around her house. Yeah. Um, and if you, I, I didn't notice this until just this my past watching. In fact, my girlfriend pointed out to me, like the timeline, she's like, tells her dad to wake her up in a half hour or something like that. So she sets up all these booby traps. It was probably like six hours of work. She does it <laughs> half hour. And then also has time to go to sleep and find Freddy. And then it's light out when she wakes up. And I was <laughs> yeah, like, wait, uh, it's 1230 in the morning. Stuff, it should be like pitch black out still. I did catch that. I was like, <laughs> this timeline's a little off. But when she told Glenn about, you know, reading the book or books on survival, it almost felt like something like how to survive the apocalypse. <laughs> and it felt like yes. something you would see in a zombie movie more so than this one. And in a way, I guess Freddy is kind of like a zombie because he's dead, but he's coming back from the dead to kill people. And, you know, I haven't watched too many zombie movies. I did watch Night of the Living Dead, the original for the first time recently. So I was kind of like getting that sort of vibe with all of these booby traps and trying to keep Freddy away (laughs) yeah i mean i appreciate that she's she's proactive um i will say out of all the slashers nancy is probably the most like you know um strong independent female especially at a time when those were pretty rare maybe until halloween 2018 (laughs) yes yes uh but of the era yeah yeah the original run because i mean jamie lee curtis in the original halloween is not i mean she kind of becomes one at the end out of necessity um she you know she toughens up and that's a great moment but nancy kind of the whole way through is is pretty pretty badass yeah agreed and then what's it not to jump too far ahead because i'm sure there's all the stuff i want to talk about in between but i gotta ask what do you think of the ending because the ending is a weird thing the the very the, the button at the end 
Um, I guess they had like, I don't know, three different ideas for endings or it was like Freddy grabbing the mom through the door, the, you know, like the, the car being Freddy somehow, I don't know, has like his sweater print on the top, yeah. and, like, the roof malfunction. And I guess they had, like I said, two or three ideas and they were just like, let's just do them all at once. And to me, it always like was like, what a weird, like they did such a good job establishing the world and like the rules within it. And then at the last second, it's like, well, is this, was that all a dream? How much of that happened? Like, were the kids all of a sudden alive again? Like, I don't know. To me, that never quite, I mean, it's like a fun ending. It's like a good, you know, when you saw it in theaters, I'm sure like it, it had a lasting impression. But now that I've seen the movie a hundred times, it's kind of like, eh, a little, little cheesy. I was confused. That's how I felt when I first <laughs> yeah. finished. I was like, huh, that was a choice or many choices <laughs> in this case. And you know, I liked it when they brought the kids back and then they had the convertible top be the stripes from his sweater. And I was like, okay, so that made me think it wasn't real. But then her mom was back and I was kind of like, well, maybe she found a way to get her mom back because the dad leaves the room. And, you know, that was kind of the moment where we had, I would say, the worst visuals of the movie because the CGI there <laughs> yes. did not look great at all. And I let it slide. Plus she was like a party. She was like a party store skeleton. Yeah. And just the bright lights coming out of the bed <laughs> yeah. and everything. I, it feels like a haunted house. Yeah. Like a cheap haunted house. <laughs> right. But then her dad left her in the room by herself, and I figured it was either because he didn't want to believe what he just saw or he knew what he just saw was real, but he knew Nancy understood enough of what was going on to let her try and figure out how to finish it. And I was kind of like, wait, so did she really figure it out? Because she said all of the right things at the end about Freddy not being real. He was dead. And then I was like, okay, I could believe her mom coming back. And then I was like, it might be a stretch for everyone else to come back because at least the mom's death literally had just happened. And then she's grabbed through the window and it's like a very terrible dummy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, everything, the, the prior 87 minutes or whatever are so good. I'm willing to forgive it. And I did like that the runtime was only about an hour and a half because then you do only have a few minutes where you're like, okay, I'll let this slide because it's an 80s horror movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I think on the whole, like it doesn't, um, especially like I said, slashers had this formula that basically they were all sticking to. It kept it interesting by subverting some of the, the little expectations along the way. Yeah. Plus it had the good characters on top of it. So did you feel there were there were moments where where you thought it dragged or anything like that? No, not at all, really. I sat down and I didn't even know how long the movie was when I sat down to watch it. I went and rented it on iTunes and I was like, oh, wow, it's only 91 minutes. And I was actually more stoked for it after that because sometimes I'll <laughs> see mo- movie runtimes and I'm just like, how? How did you make this movie this long? Yeah, that. That's a two plus hour commitment. Yeah, especially if it's something where I already know the story and maybe like this, I just haven't seen it all the way through. Or, you know, it's old enough like this too, where you know about certain movies without necessarily having had to watch them just because so many people have talked about them. It was kind of how I felt about The Sopranos, even though I had never watched The Sopranos until I eventually made my way through all of that. It's like, I know how great the show is. And I know it's about all these mobsters. (laughs) And I (laughs) just need to dedicate the time to sit down and watch it. And obviously, The Sopranos is a much longer commitment than Nightmare on Elm Street, because 
that was <laughs> quite a few seasons. And this, I was like, okay, good. That makes me think they knew exactly what they were doing. And I yeah, felt that was, way until that ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it's pretty perfectly like they knew what they wanted to do. They kind of got in and got out. But then it was like they didn't quite know. They knew they needed like one more scare at the end because all those slashers always had it. Yeah. Um, they just weren't sure exactly what to do. So it's a eh, not the strongest note to end on, but like I said, everything that comes before it is so good. Um, I think, you know, it, it can overcome that. Honestly, that's how I felt a lo- about a lot of Stephen King books. So I think I'm even more inclined to let it slide <laughs> because I'll I'll read some of his books and I was like, oh, man, this was great. But then that was a weird ending because he'll put like an epilogue yes. on or something. And I'm just like, yes, could have cut the epilogue would have been great. But the epilogue's <laughs> there and it is what it is. <laughs> um, so final question for you from me. Did you have like one, I guess, a favorite moment or a moment that stuck out to you or one that you, you know, maybe you knew of in your head, but it played out differently in the movie? Tina's death scene, I think, was by far the thing I was the most impressed with throughout the whole movie because I was not expecting it to be that violent. And I was almost a little disappointed when they didn't show us what exactly happened to Glenn. They showed him falling through his bed and the TV and the record player and his headphones being sucked through with him. But then after the fact, they just told you how brutal it was without really showing it to you. And maybe that was something budget-wise. They just couldn't you know, go all out on another room like they did with Tina's death. So they left it open to the imagination enough to where I thought it was okay. But at the same time, I still wanted to see what happened to Glenn. But Tina's death (laughs) was a big highlight of this movie. Just because they pull her up to the ceiling, they have blood going everywhere. And we see Freddy briefly, like you said, but then he disappears. You know, all of a sudden, he's not under the sheet when Rod pulls it off. And you're like, oh, wow. This is really great. Yeah, and I th- I think it's also uh, perfectly capped with then we see when you see her body in the body bag at school the next yes. day. Yes. Or when Nancy see it. That's such a good moment, like a good one-two punch. I will say this where my my nerdiness will pay off here with a fun fact. Um, so, you know, you see the, the geyser of blood come out of Glenn's bed. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it was originally shot that his body comes out with it. Okay. And I forget, I... Uh, so I, I talked up my nerdiness and now I can't remember the details. And I forget if it was either they just thought it looked too silly or if MPA made them cut it out. It might have been MPAA. But either way, there there exists a deleted scene where he he falls out like at the end once all the blood is done. Just like, you know, him in the same outfit, just covered head to toe in blood. Um, I don't know that the footage exists, but I think there's stills of it or something somewhere. And it does look a little like, I don't know, how can you top the... The fountain of blood. Yeah. Like, like how would his body still exist after that? But I don't know. I I mean, I'd love to see it if it does exist. Uh, And I do think I um, and I've heard a few other people say this. There's something like and maybe maybe it's a a toxic masculinity thing, but there's something I don't know what the word would be so effective that when Glenn gets pulled in, like the last thing he does, he calls for his mom. I always thought that was such a cool detail. Yeah. I was really just impressed with the visuals up until those last few minutes all around because you could tell what they wanted to go for and they just went all out on it. Even the look of Freddy and him peeling the different faces off, I was like, that is disgusting and fantastic all at the same time. (laughs) 
Yeah, he definitely, um, I know you haven't mentioned in the sequels yet, but he kind of becomes a parody of himself over the course of, of the next six movies or five movies, at least. And like he toys with his victims in a different way. Like he's, he's like a cartoon character, basically, by by the sixth one. But he in the the original, I mean, you know, obviously there were no rules. So he's like he's toying with them, but in this weird, gross way, like he has he doesn't have one liners so much as just like, I don't know, things to creep you out. Like you said, he pulls his face off and shows a skull underneath. He like cuts off his fingers and they spurt out green blood. Um, just little stuff like that. It's so, such like interesting now looking back on it knowing i don't know you don't quite yet but knowing what comes after it in the later sequels what he becomes okay um uh it's an interesting juxtaposition looking back on the original when he was you know just this like he's he's kept in the shadows a lot you don't see him you know like again again in sequels he's like all in these brightly lit his like his makeup's a little more sleeker looking i believe this one david miller was the special effects artist and he based it on like actual burn victims and I lo- another thing I love is the lack of of I'm trying to think of how to say this. Like you don't know sometimes whether you're in a nightmare or it's reality. Right. And I think that's that's his that's his biggest benefit. And that's something that if you ever make it to the remake, which I don't highly recommend, <laughs> but it's interesting. Um, they lose that because they they do their nightmares as this like highly stylized. They like look cool visually. It's it's like a great great looking like really cool production design and cinematography and stuff like that but you instantly know it's a nightmare it doesn't feel like reality anymore and i thought like you're losing one of your biggest strengths of the story is that you don't know it blurs those lines yeah it was never obvious in this one and i really like that about it but i do want to backtrack a little and talk more about nancy's dad because he's the lieutenant who is on the case when Tina is first murdered and Rod is the obvious suspect because he was the only one anyone can confirm was in the room. And then he bolts and it takes Nancy and Glenn a minute to believe that he didn't do it. And, you know, obviously they heard him screaming and you would think that given what we see later when Nancy describes Freddie to her parents, that the marks on Tina, the cuts how consistent they were and like equally spread apart and everything, something would click with her dad, but he's so unwilling to believe what Nancy is saying because he knows that Freddie is dead. But at the same time, given, I guess, the MO, you could say, it feels like he would have to be the obvious choice, even though he's dead, because it's one of those things where we learn that Marge was one of the parents involved And obviously, her dad knows about it, too. Whether or not he was involved, I don't think was ever made super clear because it's her mom who tells her everything and shows her the gloves that she kept as a trophy for some reason, which is like a weird serial (laughs) killer thing to do. Yeah, yeah, a trophy. (laughs) Yeah. So I was kind of like, okay, he's in denial, basically. And I think he played that off as long as he could. And it worked for his character because cops are taught to follow the evidence and rod being the one in the room with tina okay he's the obvious suspect but what on earth did he cut her with like that (laughs) you know what i mean so you have these little things that build up for him throughout the movie and even though we don't see a ton of him until he's really needed 
he is basically at work anytime Nancy is talking to her mom almost. Yeah. And I just thought it was really well done to not have him come in and sort of take over everything and be the one trying to figure things out. And I think Halloween did a nice job of that too. You know, the cops were obviously involved, but they didn't come in and take over. Yeah, I think there's there's a little bit of of kids versus adults at play. Um Yeah. Because it is, I mean, Freddy targets children. That's why he was killed in the first place and now he's coming back to still target these children now they're a little older. Um and I guess, I mean, if I were in her dad's shoes, I would maybe think, oh, it's a, a copycat killer or something. I don't think my brain would immediately go to, oh, that guy we killed is probably back and he's like haunting our nightmares. But uh, I don't know. He's uh, I will say John Saxon, who who plays her dad, is probably like the whole cast is solid. I mean, obviously, Johnny Depp would go on to be like a huge actor. Um, Robert England is incredible as Freddie. But I think John Saxon is kind of like the unsung hero. He kind of holds it all together and grounds it really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a guy who is like, I don't know, kind of a character actor, I guess you'd call him, because he's been in a ton of stuff, uh, a lot of really good movies. Um, he was in Black Christmas, which is like a proto slasher, came out shortly before Halloween, and has shares a lot of similarities. Um, Dario Gento's Tenebrae, uh, Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon, a lot of cool movies. Um, but I just think in this, he's like the the the, the quintessential cop character, but three-dimensional. Um, he's not just the, you know, what I say goes kind of guy because he's also this caring father. And I think mm-hmm. that's that really comes across, you know, especially in the third act. If Nancy hadn't been one of the victims, I don't think his character would have played off nearly as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That That's the thing. In any other movie, you'd probably have your cop character would just be a stock character. But the fact that he's also her father and also potentially involved with the original freddy killing i guess i kind of always assumed he was because his wife was his wife yeah if was. if they were together then i imagine yeah. that would be the case yeah so so because he's he's so you know deeply rooted within the storyline uh it plays really well yeah it's really the other parents you kind of wonder about because we don't get anything from Rod's parents, do we? Does he does he even have parents who are around? <laughs> I'm not really sure. No, I he, I think he's 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 like a I don't know what you'd call him street tough because like he's he seems older even though they're all in high school together and he kind of just does what he wants and I mean he's in jail you don't hear anything about his parents or anything. Yeah. Um, I think they mentioned that he has a record that has like some minor offenses and stuff like that. Um, so I guess I kind of assumed he was always on his own and Tina was probably like you know in her rebellious teen phase and wanted like the bad boy and fell for him. Um, Cause we do at least learn that Tina's dad left and yeah, it's clear that the mom either made bad choices in men since then, or was just, has just been going through a tough time to where she doesn't pay attention to Tina quite as much. She does come in the room when Tina has the nightmare, but then after that she's on a trip conveniently. Yeah, and she's, <laughs> She's like swept away by her lover, yeah. let's call him, who is, uh, yeah, seem, let's just say she seems like she's still making bad decisions. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we get, we do get a little bit of uh, Glenn's parents. They're kind of the, they're more of the, you know, one dimensional, like, you know, stay away from our son type parents. Yeah. But I mean, it's what the story calls for. And we don't see them until 
Nancy has sort of devolved a little more and people are starting to kind of whisper, I guess, around town. Yeah. Well, yeah, because Nancy's mom puts bars up on the windows and they live across the street. They're (laughs) like, wow, that lady's crazy. And so is their daughter. Yeah. And the wife seems to be a little more reasonable and is like, well, you know, she's by herself a lot because the lieutenant's always at work you know, trying to solve this. She's just being cautious. But then the dad's like, no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I just really had a lot of fun with it. Do you have any final thoughts before we go into briefly talking about ratings and other thoughts? I would say for you and any potential listener who has only seen the original, um, I do think the sequels are worth checking out at some point, just at least you know, out of curiosity. But what you could do if you have spare time this Halloween season, and I know you barely do, (laughs) but um, if you check out Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is the seventh Nightmare on Elm Street movie, but it has nothing to do with any other ones. Basically, Wes Craven left the series. They made six sequels uh, without him. Well, he was like a little bit involved with part three and it's it's the best of those sequels. But uh, then he came back in 10 years later, 94, and made this really interesting movie that, basically led to scream and it's like within this within this movie um nightmare on elm street exists and heather heather langenkamp who played nancy stars as herself and robert england who plays freddie also is in it as himself and wes craven is in it as himself and basically they're in the real world you know quote unquote and this Freddie is coming after them. Basically, Freddie was kind of based on this ancient evil. Also, also I'll tell you the the plot is a little convoluted, okay. but the concept, the the metatextual aspects, I just think are brilliant. I mean, obviously, he would do it way better in Scream, but I don't think we'd get Scream if we didn't have New Nightmare. Um, so, if you did enjoy this one, I, I think it's a, it makes a super interesting double feature. Okay, noted. Maybe by the time everyone is hearing this, I will have gone and watched that, and <laughs> we'll see. And I mentioned I wanted to talk about ratings real quick. I ended up giving this a four and a half out of five. And, you know, donking the half star was only because the end was so weird. (laughs) And, you know, there (laughs) were just some minor things, really. It's not that the ending completely took everything else that came before it away. It was just one of those weird decisions that you're like, oh, okay, maybe you should have ended the movie a few minutes earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I, I guess objectively, I'd probably say four and a half out of five. But subjectively uh i'd give it a perfect five because like i mentioned a couple of the the weirder beats but it's only because i've seen the movie a hundred times and know it like the back of my hand that i can now point out all these things because i could also point out just as many things and way more uh that i love about it um like i said i just think it was a brilliant concept uh really great execution from you know the top down from the visuals the cast um the makeup um the score is great. I just think it really just fires on all cylinders um, in a time when there wasn't a ton of originality in horror. Uh, this kind of brought a lot to it. And then granted, it was ripped off for the next six movies. But um, I think it stands the test of time. And I think it's really cool that people watching it now for the first time still believe that. Yeah, this was a fun one to watch. And I definitely plan on getting around to at least some of the sequels. It's one of those things where, you know, I've seen the first in the most recent Halloween. I've now seen the first Nightmare on Elm Street. And <laughs> I'm still unsure about Friday the 13th, just because like I said, I clearly started a bunch of stuff. All those Halloween nights that I spent at my friend's house, and then I don't think we ever finished anything. 
either that or, you know, there were just only certain scenes we were allowed to watch. <laughs> I don't know what it was, <laughs> but I'm definitely going to have a lot of fun diving into this franchise along with those other ones at some point. Like you said, I do have a few other things I might have to get to first, but <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> I mean, it's been 35 years since this first one came out now. So, I mean, I guess you got a little bit of time to catch up on the sequels. <laughs> hey, at least I've seen the first one now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, you see, you've seen the best, but I, I will say part three is a really good sequel. Two is... Two has weird um, homoerotic overtones and not weird that they're homoerotic, just weird, weird choices made in that movie. Um, there's a documentary coming out about it okay. called Scream Queen that I'm very interested to see. Um, and then four, five and six, they kind of progressively go downhill <laughs> uh, very steadily to the point where six is just so, so cheesy. OK, um, but yeah, one, two and three, I think are all really good for what they are. Um, and four is like solid. And then seven, I think, is is underappreciated. And then Freddy vs. Jason. I know then you have to watch all the Jason <laughs> movies. But in like 17 years, if you watch one a year, have me back on. We'll talk about Freddy vs. Jason because I love that one too. Well, I'm glad you're very confident that I will be doing this podcast 17 <laughs> years from now. <laughs> I'm not even ready for 2020 yet. So <laughs> might have to slow things down a little here. But Alex, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun. Of course. And before we go, I just quickly want to let you all know about our Patreon. You can support this podcast in particular for a dollar a month. That'll get you a thank you. And there's a $5 a month tier where you get to pick a topic. So if, for instance, you really want me to go watch all of the rest of the Nightmare on Elm Street films and talk about them, you know, I, I guess I would count that as one topic, even though it could run several episodes. That's a bargain. <laughs> that is a bargain. a bargain. Somebody do it. I'm being so nice here. <laughs> <laughs> and you could follow the podcast at Geekdom Pod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you all for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>